Hello, this is Daryl here, sending love as always. Thank you for tuning in. I just want to say, if you like this interview, you can check our website for companion workbooks, action guides, tools, checklists, templates, and show notes with links for everything mentioned on the call. Just visit bestbusinesscoach.ca. That's best, B-E-S-T, businesscoach.ca. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Daryl Urbanski, your host as always. And today we are joined by Vinayak Bot, CFA, a dynamic business leader with over 20 years of ex expertise in leadership, sales management, and consulting. As the Senior Vice President and Head of Asia Pacific at FactSet, Vin has showcased his prowess in crafting sales strategies for both technology and financial sectors. With a rich educational background, including an MBA from the Indian Institute of Management and a bachelor's in, elect in electronics from the National Institute of Technology, he seamlessly blends finance, management, and technology insights. Vin's international experience spans the USA, Singapore, and India, making him a champion of diversity and inclusion. Passionate about team building and leadership, he's a true advocate for excellence in the global village, and I've asked him to join us here today to share his story, plus help us all do better with sales, strategy, and success. So, Vin, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? Daryl, great to be here, and thank you for having me. It's yeah. been a great day, and looking yeah. forward to chatting with you further on this on the variety of topics. Thank you. It's an honor and a pleasure to have you here. And before we hop into this, I just want to ask, how did you even get started? It's a unique path that you walked. Did your parents mm -hmm. work in marketing and sales, too? Were they entrepreneurs? Is this a family... Is this a family career path? Actually, no. It's an uh, unusual uh, walk, so to speak. I was trained as an engineer, and after four years of solid electronics engineering, I started my career as a technology expert in the, in the software industry. Spent many years writing hardcore code and a variety of programming languages, C Sharp, ESP.NET. This is 25 years back. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the technologies are a little outdated now. Uh, nevertheless, uh, I enjoyed my uh, stint as, uh, as an engineer, and it was over a period of time that I discovered my true passion, and, and while engineering is, is great, and, and, and I, I loved my job as a software engineer, what I found limiting personally was the kind of problems that software engineers sometimes are given. It's a close-ended problem. And it's great to apply your skills and knowledge and expertise to solve closer problems. Nothing wrong with that, but it's a function of what appeals to you. If you, I'm the kind of person I, over time, while working with a variety of clients in the, in the consulting industry, realized that I enjoy talking to people a fair bit. I love open-ended challenges and not just close-ended problems. And over time, I discovered my greater interest in some of the uh, other aspects of work like management consulting, program management, and that's when I transitioned into uh, different dimensions of my cons of the consulting industry, eventually into sales. Got it. Got it. Got it. So how was it? So what, you were just a, a protege? They were like, hey, you are great <laughs> in sales and you just, it's just been raining money since, the, since then or what? It was uh, many years back when I was uh, consulting for a very large uh, financial services firm back in the U.S. in my consulting shop is when I transitioned first into domain consulting. This is when the client was looking to create a platform for financial advisors, about 20,000 financial advisors based in the U.S. And I, when, I when I started talking to the end users more from a domain consulting standpoint, I started enjoying that fair bit. Uh, that, you know, and it was very interesting 
you talk to a non-technical person, like a financial advisor, is a business guy, right? He speaks with rich clients all the time. And his view of how the applications should function was so different from the way engineers thought about it. But that's mm-hmm. what really mattered. But they were the actual users. They were the actual mm-hmm. users working with actual clients paying money. That's why I, that's what makes it commercially viable. And then I got to hear about the perspective. It was like, in the beginning, it was an aha moment. Wow. This is the, these are the real people that we are building applications and solutions for. And I started doing more and more of that is when I left, I was doing less and less of technology and more and more of front-facing, client-facing activity. Mm-hmm. That's how I got started on the sales side of the world. Obviously, there's probably been a progression to get mm-hmm. the senior vice president, head of Asia Pacific sales and customer success. So what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced in developing your sales career and how did you overcome those? It's a great question, Dara. I can, there are perhaps many different dimensions to it. I think the first one was making a transition into sales. And when you transition into sales from a background like an engineer, you are looking at multiple dimensions in which you have to grow. One is the obvious dimension of sales skills, right? Mm-hmm. How the way of engaging with clients, building relationship with clients, uh, understanding the the world from clients' uh, perspective uh, and speaking the client lingo, et cetera. There are obvious sales techniques and strategies in terms of how to create a pipeline, how to advance deals, how to do the forecast, et cetera, which are perhaps easier to learn. When I say easier, I'm saying that with, uh, with, with, with a lot of respect to these, these skills and competencies. But the bigger challenge, in my opinion, is a mindset shift a mind shift of being comfortable with the unknown, being comfortable with the uncontrollable, being comfortable in, because when you're making a transition from an engineering world, engineers have a great degree of control on what to do. They control their time, they have control on the competency, and they have a great deal of say on what gets done, how it gets done, the whole nine yards. Sales world on the contrary is very open-ended. You are at the mercy of a variety of factors including macro factors like market, the client budgets, people, and working with people is complex and sometimes it's messy. So getting comfortable with that at an emotional level is a bigger switch and a non-trivial switch. I think a lot of people do not appreciate how important that is for successful career transition. I would say that is one of the most important elements of transition uh, if you're coming from a non-traditional sales background. Mm. And of course, as you grow in your sales career, there are many things. You begin as an individual sales contributor, and as you take on higher responsibility, and then you become sales manager, it's it's a very different element, right? You are responsible and accountable for someone else's work that you do not directly control. That adds an added dimension of lack of control uh, and needs getting used to. And again, as you become even more senior, become manager of managers, you're just adding more and more distance between yourself and the action on the ground. Mm, mm, uh, mm. So while there are hard competencies like management, managing the pipeline, uh, cascading the message, coaching the team, etc., there's also this emotional dimension of being comfortable from being removed from the action and not knowing every detail of what's going on the ground. So let me start to say this back. So first, you have to learn some sales skills, which maybe is like asking probing questions and building rapport and learning a script supposedly. And then there's a mindset shift, being comfortable with the unknown and uncontrollable that you're going to have to basically trust the process. 
and optimize the process. Is that a fair? Yeah, I think in, in summary, right? And I think the first part of laying out, there are a variety of ways in which there are, there are standard tools and techniques as a spin selling or which technique, which yeah. is well-known, situational, problematic, and inferential yeah. and needs payoff. These are all the frameworks that definitely help uh, structure your thought processes uh, in, in being disciplined and focused on how you go about asking questions and becoming comfortable and so forth. The second dimension that you mentioned is is about the emotional comfort, mm-hmm. which is about feeling okay to be not on top of everything that's going around, everything you're accountable for, which is also equally important, as you mentioned. Got it. It's almost like an action through inaction kind of concept. What I mean by that is like you, you control what you can control and then the rest was up to grace and God, so to speak. Mm-hmm. In the sense of, again, you can't control the market, can't control the economy, but you can control the process. And anytime right. you do something enough times, a pattern emerges, and then you can try to tweak and optimize this. And then you talk about managing the pipeline. What does that mean? For someone that's new to this, what does that mean, managing the pipeline? Pipeline is, I think of it as a funnel, right? You have a funnel that's got, let's say, a big mouth, and then it becomes narrower, right? And sales process is very similar in terms of how it happens. Let's say you're in a B2B sales, which is my world, right? You are uh, speaking with a financial services firm and there are different terms, but to keep it very simple, let's say you speak to someone who might have an interest in what you've got to offer. You speak to the person and you confirm the interest. At that point of time, you call him a prospect, right? A prospect is entering the funnel. And you have many such prospects in terms of the institutions and people. And, and once you have a prospect, you have to qualify the prospect. Qualify means, is this the right kind of person? Is this the right fit? Do they have the budget? Is there a need? Because at the end of the day, what people have to be reminded, especially in the early days of sales, is that it's not about you and your product. It's not. It's about the client and her problems. And when people say client-centricity, people use the word client-centricity as if it's some kind of a fancy buzzword. It's not. It's essentially at the heart of sales process. Yes. Without your understanding of clients' problems, you have nothing to do in sales, right? So it's really that element of appreciating what problem is the client looking to solve? And is my solution appropriate for the client? And there are times when it's not, right? And to have the humility to say, look, we are perhaps not the best fit for you and not get into mis-selling or exaggerating the capacity of what you got to offer. One needs to have the humility to say, I can perhaps do 20% of what the client needs, but for the fee I'm charging, this is not the best fit. And, right. and tell the client so. And the client will respect you for it. And when yep. his needs change down the line, he'll come back and knock your doors, right? So right. at that point of time, the, the, the person becomes a qualified prospect. And then you take it to the next stage of evaluation. It could be commercial discussion or based on what you're selling, there could be a trial period. There could be a technical evaluation. The client might want to go through a formal process like an RFP, request for, request for proposal, request for code, and different companies have different systems. And again, based on the, the ticket size, is it a few tens of thousand dollars? Is it hundreds of thousand dollars? Is it millions of dollars? Based on how big and how expensive your solution is, there's a different degree of formality. Mm-hmm. And then there's a lot of other things that happens in this process. It's in large organizations for large sales, it is complex. And there are a lot of people that are involved, right? And you have to have a sense of who these people are. 
who are technical users, who are financial users, who are business users, who is the financial approver. The person who signs of the check oftentimes doesn't even look at your product. That's the reality of right. sense. Right. So you have so many different stakeholders and you have to appreciate that their needs are different, their wants are different, their priorities are different. And you got to make sure that you address their needs and priorities and wants. So you got to figure out your relationship map, figure out who are the different people involved who, are, who need to be spoken to. And you have to bring in different people from your side. It's not one person's job. You, it, it's, it could be, if it's a pure place transactional sale of low value, it could be a one person job. But for most large B2B sales, it is multifunction. You have on the client side, people of different seniority. And you, just, you need to bring in different people from your side to speak the language, right? And this is how you advance an opportunity in the pipeline, going back to your earlier question. So you began as, as someone who, who could be a prospect you, and you confirm that he's a prospect, then you qualify the prospect. And then you further the deal into a commercial negotiation stage. And at the end of it, there is either a deal closure or a fallout. Not touched upon every single aspect. You can create final slice. People define, use words like suspect, prospect, qualified lead, and so forth. But again, you get the idea that it is about taking someone from maybe he has a need that I can fulfill all the way to here is a confirmed sale for X number of products for why number of dollars? So let me again parrot this back to you. So it sounds like there's, and I'm going to use different terminology, but first you have to identify someone, a potential prospect. You have to qualify that they are actually a prospect and are actually interested in what you're doing. And then this qualification period leads to an opening of the sale. And mm -hmm. you also said that in the beginning phase, it's really not even about you. It's all about the client. So first we have to find someone we have to identify, is this, are they a potential prospect? We have to qualify them as a prospect. Then we have to open the sale and open the sale mm -hmm. by identifying their needs and mm -hmm. criteria. Mm -hmm. And then you said, you, and I think I, you, I said the initiation stage, you follow them into the initiation stage. I wasn't sure what you said, but it's the closing of the sale where now you're going to get all the decision makers involved. You're really going to get into mm -hmm. the details of things. Mm -hmm. Either you're going to have a closure or it's going to not, it's going to fall out and then you try to follow up in the future or, or put it in the bucket to be forgotten about. Yeah. yeah you got all the major points, Daryl. I think one thing I would like to elaborate on is when you're talking of clients' needs, this is a huge topic in itself, but I think the key point is some of the needs are articulated needs. Some of the needs are felt needs, but not articulated needs. Mm. Now, let me give you an example with a B2C scenario, right? I, Let's assume, let's say I, I, I enjoy running and I have signed up for a marathon, which is serious endeavor, right? What is my articulated need? My articulated need is that I need a good pair of running shoes. Right. What is my unarticulated need? I need the right kind of running shoes. Running 42 kilometers is not a joke. And right. based on my pronation, based on my shape of my leg, if I'm overpronating or underpronating, I would need a shoe that compensates for my deficit, for my deficiency. Right. If I don't have the right pair of running shoes, I'm going to injure myself. So if I'm walk, walking into an ASIC store to buy a pair of running shoes, and I say, I, I need a pair of running shoes, that's my articulated need. And if you're a salesperson in an ASIC store, your objective should be to uncover what are my unarticulated needs, right? Am I a casual runner? Am I a serious runner? Am I preparing for... 
uh, a structure running like marathon, which I am in this case, what is the shape of my leg? Do I know if I overpronate or underpronate or do I have a flat foot? And based on these unarticulated needs, if you can uncover those unarticulated needs, you'll be in a better, better position to advise me what to do. Mm, so yeah. this mm. is where a salesperson skill lies in asking the right questions, understanding what the person is, is looking to do. Mm. And elicit and, and get the person to articulate these things, which he himself might not have thought. I love that. Yeah. Because another analogy would be if it was a road race or an off-road race, whereas if it's a road race, mm -hmm. you want a very soft light shoe, but if it's off-road, you need almost like a cross-trekking shoe, right? Exactly. Going up rocks and stuff. So this is articulate. I need a new pair of shoes, but the unarticulated need, and that's almost where you get this custom fit by asking those right questions. The, the lead feels understood. You also understand the situation so you can make a better recommendation for them as opposed mm -hmm. to just trying to ram down something down their throats. Exactly. It's not about selling, telling me the most expensive pair of shoes you can for which you get the most commission. If you take that approach, maybe you can, you'll succeed the first time, but I'm unlikely to come back. So right. if you give me what exactly I need, even if I have not asked for it, my loyalty to you, my appreciation and respect for your ability to uncover my needs will be so much higher. Mm. And that's how you secure repeat customer saying that right. like, this is the guy I want to go. And I'll tell that to 10 other friends, you're looking to run, go to this store and talk to this specific person. He will get you the right. That's how you build trust. That's how you build a community. That's how you create a network. Yeah. I love that. I love that. I love that. I think it's really good. What's, what's a relationship map. So a relationship map is when you are looking at a B2B scenario, it's not applicable to, in a B, it's not an ASIC store story that's not super relevant. Uh, in a B2B scenario where you are looking to make a million dollar sale and a million dollar sale for a complex product will have many different stakeholders, right? One of them is of course the end user or could be a technical user. Then there's a functional user who doesn't touch your product. Let's say you're selling software to a financial services company. He or she doesn't touch the software, but will consume the output of the software. It could be in a document like a PDF, or it could be a word, and may not ever touch your graphical user interface, but will consume it and make significant decisions. And then there are more senior people who write the check. And let's say in the financial services organization, it could be an analyst and it, who is end user. Portfolio manager could be the functional user. And a chief investment officer could be the financial user. Now, these are different, these are different functions on the client side. Now, you need to understand this very clearly because you have to get a yes from all of those people. And what you have to appreciate is that what they care for is different. Mm. End user cares for how user-friendly the graphical user interface is right. because that's, what, that's going to determine his or her quality of life if they're going to spend a lot of time using your software. If you go to the financial user and keep harping on how good your graphical user interface is, you have missed the boat, right? right? The financial user is not, he cares, he's not indifferent, but that's not the biggest issue that he has. Financial user is thinking, I've got to spend a million dollars. What is this million dollar buying me? Mm -hmm. And you got to articulate what is a million dollar buying him or her? And let's say you're selling software that helps helps the team make better financial decision in an investment management firm and hence make better returns, which means make more money. 
Right. Now, that's what the financial user is going to care for. How much more money can I make by using your software? And now you could give relatable case studies if you have case studies, or if you can code the clients, you can code the clients. Or if you can't code the clients, you can say, based on our experience, that our clients have been able to realize improved return of up to three, four, five, whatever your story. You've got to to tell what matters the financial user. And that there are functional users who are in between. They don't care for your graphical user interface as much as an end user would care for. They are not financial users either, but they are the people who are looking for insights that will make their job better. Mm. So you then tell a different story. What kind of insights are you generating? How is it different from the insights that they are generating with whatever system they have? Could be an in-house system, could be a competitor's product, could be something else. And this is what you will do in a relationship map. I gave just three different personas. Like in, in a large organization, you'll have many types. You'll have market data, you'll have procurement, all kinds of people, right? And then you'll have to bring in different people from your side. Can one person do an excellent job of articulating the strengths across these different user types. Right. That's going to, that's going to be hard. I forget where it was. I heard, I read research somewhere that if you can get a team involved, so once the sale is initiated, I think it was Gong. I'm not sure the company, but somebody published research that had analyzed a bunch of stuff where they basically said, once the sale is like under, once we're into the sales discussion and actually considering this, by including more people, it improved outcomes by something like 30%, mm-hmm. 30 to 40% by involving more people. If mm-hmm. you, as soon as you can get, you know, once the sales discussion's in, you can get more people involved, whether it's on the buyer side or the seller side, just more mm-hmm. people together. Mm-hmm. And they didn't, the theory was, I think, was that it became more collaborative once other people came mm-hmm. in. Whereas when it's one-on-one, mm-hmm. it might easily become adversarial if a sticking point comes up or a point of friction or an objection. Whereas when it's a group, now the idea gets passed around a bit more and other people can interject. It was a theory. I just remember hearing that. You talked about basically teams selling teams. And I Absolutely. Like, yeah, yeah. And it's really about, and, and, and just to put it back into the context of the client, it's not so much about bringing in more people from your company or your firm in, in, in itself. You're really addressing the needs of different client positions, client client players, client roles. So I think I I keep bringing back to the client situation because it's really about solving a client's problem, right? And sometimes based on the deal side of the deal, you might want to bring your top gun, like your CEO to meet with the CEO of the client's organization. And some people sometimes ask, what's the value? The CEO of of the client will never use your software. Let's say it's a large company, right? He is too, too far remote to care for anything. And think about it, right? Let's say they have a problem with your system down right. the line, and there is no such thing as problem-free solution anywhere. What the CEO is thinking is, do I have someone on the supplier side or the seller side whom I can pick up the phone and call, who will take my call, with whom I have a relationship, mm. and I can tell him, mate, I, have this, I need this problem solved in, a, in an informal fashion instead of going through the formal channels. Yeah, that's great. That's actually huge. Right. As soon as you said that, I was thinking of a couple of tools that I've used extensively and how valuable having those relationships is, is in a time of crisis and need. Absolutely. Um, and then you got to dig the well before there's fire in the building, right? That you got right. in the sense that you right. got to build a relationship before you need to use a relationship. 
And when you bring in senior people from your side and introduce them to the clients, you're giving them the reassurance saying that, look, you've got access to senior, powerful people on our side. So if you ever have a problem, all you have to do is to pick up the phone and call them. Because how many people have, you call your bank, you call your cell phone provider, and you're just stuck on hold with some impersonal, non-humane, <laughs> almost the crime against humanity customer service process exactly. system. Yeah, 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 exactly. yeah, yeah. That's powerful. That's powerful. So- now, can you maybe share what sort of specific skills and behaviors you believe are important for your staff to improve and develop? So the great part of sales career is that there is no end to learning. What? And there's no end to learning. You mm. can keep on learning. That's one part of the story that I really love. Second part is that it's incremental, as in you can get better every year you can build on competencies. It's layered, right? I'll get to the specifics in a moment. So these two are the things that I find really impressive because as you spend more and more time in sales, you are becoming a better salesperson, a better sales manager, mm. a better sales uh, director, or whatever your job function is. As you spend more and more time, as long as you're on the path of continuous learning, you get better at it. Now, coming back to your question, what are some of the competencies that the people should have? Now, so I think I, I like to look at it as a broad-based framework, right? Competency has got three key dimensions, knowledge, skills, which are the tip of the iceberg, right? Be that you can see that and they're relatively easier to learn. The third is the one that is beneath the surface. It's, it's not the tip of the iceberg, it's what lies under the water. Combination of attributes, attitude, and behavior. Mm. Now, when you're starting off your sales career, typically as an individual sales contributor, the first two will take precedence. Right. You've got to know your client. Right. You've got to know your client's industry, your client's domain, your client's problems, your own solution, how it is fitting into client situation. You've got to know the competition. You've got to know how is your solution different and better, point of parity and point of differentiation. Point of parity is where is the overlap between what you got to offer, what client has got, what the competition has got to offer. If you think of concentric Venn diagrams, that's the area that two circles overlap. Point of differentiation is where there's no overlap, something that you do a good job and the competition doesn't do a good job, right? right? That's critical. Now that's the knowledge part of it. Second comes the skill. How do you articulate this? Mm -hmm. How do you articulate this in a way that resonates with the client? Mm -hmm. And remember, it's not about you and your great product. It's right. about the client and right. his problems. 100%. I, I would keep bringing it, that point back again and again, right? Because people get so caught up in the glory of that product. I've got a great product. I've got, it's got great features. Here's a product and feature pitch. The moment the meeting starts, they go. Yep. And that's a classical sales sin, as they call it. Yep. So before, before you launch your product pitch, ask questions. It's a skill, questioning skills. I, I talked about spin, which is one of the frameworks that people use. It's a topic in itself. It's done, you can, the listeners can look it up. I am spin telling. Yeah, spin, 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 selling. spin selling is great. It's situation. You mentioned it earlier, but situational questions, problem questions, implication and needs payoff. And Correct. The best, you really need to spend a lot of your time on the situation and implication because the problems become self-evident. It's one or two questions, but the conversation is often around the situation and the implication 
of the situation? Correct. So situational questions are they're very basic questions like how many people do you have in your company? What's your problem? And, and then you get into the problem. So as you go deeper and deeper, you can get into the inference of what will your solution do for the client? And what is the is the eventual needs payoff? So there's one of the frameworks. There are many different frameworks, but essentially, understand client's problem, client's yeah. pain point. Yeah. So do not prematurely start pitching your solution, and as if it's your it's it's the best thing the mankind has known since the sliced right. bread. And right. So that that's something that a lot of people do because they have spent a lot of time preparing. They have know a lot. They want to show what they know especially when you're younger and quite over-enthusiastic. You've got to rein that back, right? So that, and, and this is something that you get better at over time, right? So asking questions and depending on what you're selling, if, it, if you're selling services, there's generally not a product that you can demonstrate. If you're selling a product, you might be able to demonstrate a product. So what is appropriate? Are you, should you talk about the benefits of the service and the, and the product or should you demonstrate in some way? It's, it's a question and the answer is, is it depends on the context. So these are some of the skills in terms of figuring out, eliciting inputs from the clients, making sure that it is well understood before you pitch. And how elegantly do you pitch? Are you able to articulate your point of differentiation convincingly? Can you handle objections? Objection handling is a huge skill, right? Yes. Can you deal with what happens during the closure? Now, these are all the skill part of the competency framework. What lies beneath is the interesting part and the messy part, right? Attributes, attitude, and behavior. How do you manage your own emotions? How do you deal with failure? Sales is not walk in the park. Right. You can, I've, I've had situations where I've worked entire 12 months on a very large deal that didn't close. Yeah. You, you have nothing to show yep. after working for 12 months. Yep. You learn some things. Yeah, I hate that. Correct. <laughs> I, I got experience. Experience means you didn't get the prize, but... <laughs> It, it, that's the booby prize is experience because you can win and get the experience too, but you're not going to win them all. And you have to accept reality and right. trust the process and be in it for the process. I think that's a really exactly right. Yeah. How do you stay motivated? How do you stay positive? Uh, how do you deal with managing your ego? Mm -hmm. Let's say, it, let's say it's a $10 million sale that you're looking to make. You spend months and you are in a meeting and one of the client prospects comes in and is being unfriendly. Mm. Unfriendly, saying it nicely, could be aggressive, could be hostile. Mm -hmm. And you might feel like punching back. This guy is, I've, I've spent almost yeah. 10 months and this guy comes in and pouring cold water on all my efforts. You got, you got to be able to rein in your emotions. You got to right. be able to be in control of what you're seeing, how you're seeing it, understand the client dynamics and do what needs to be done and not what, so you, feel what like do you What habits do you feel are most important? We talked a bit about the skills, talked about relationship map, talked about asking questions, talked about things like being okay with the unknown, uncontrollable. But mm -hmm. what specific habits do you think have helped you and help other salespeople on their path to success? I think there are lots of them. But I think if I had to pick a handful of them, one thing that people do not appreciate is the importance of listening. So there is a stereotype of a salesperson that Hollywood movies have made popular, the guy who can't stop talking in a fancy suit. It, that's such a, it, the reality of a good salesperson couldn't be farther from the truth. Mm. A good salesperson is a great listener, right? Second is preparation. 
a good salesperson is a one who takes the time to prepare. There's a lot of preparation that goes before a good sales pitch. So being disciplined, being disciplined with your time and energy, being disciplined with the sales process, being disciplined with making sure that you are well acquainted with the client persona before you go and meet the person. And then you follow through. There are elements of the job that you may not enjoy doing, but they have to be done with good quality. Mm -hmm. So being able to apply yourself and do what needs to be done, even if you don't particularly feel like doing. I love that part. I love that part. I feel like part of how this, I don't want to go on a side tangent, but I feel like part, a lot of the world's ills right now are from people that have abdicated their duty in pursuit of doing what they feel like. And I think that there's just <laughs> a lot of social ills that we have as a result of pursuing easy and right. comfort, ease and comfort, as opposed to leaning in and getting the things done. Exactly. As a man, you have responsibilities and you have, there's a poem I really called from The Invitation by Oriah, the Mountain Dreamer long. I'm not going to read it. I could look it up really quickly, but and it's, will you do what needs to be done to feed the chicken? I don't care who you are. I care if you'll do, if you'll work weary and bruised of the bone and do what needs to be done to feed the children. But it's like that, that grit, salt of the earth. Exactly. Yeah. And even if I'm going to take a bit of a philosophical, even if you think a lot of people are, are clamoring for immortality, AI is going to extend our lifespan or all this. <laughs> Whether you believe that we're going to achieve that or whether you believe we have an immortal soul, let's just take the concept of something about us is immortal. Reincarnation, I'm going to live a million times. Okay. Or yeah. my soul is immortal or uh, technology is going to make, make me immortal. Okay, great. What do you think your soul on an immortal timeline, what are the trophies that it would accumulate? Would it love and value the times that it just coasted along and things were okay? Or would it be like, man, that time the chips were down, that time I was tired and weary, I was mm -hmm. bruised, and I mm -hmm. stepped up and then I accomplished something meaningful. Exactly. And I think that, that it's just so obvious when people think about it. But in the moment, people just, they clamor for comfort. Exactly. And, and if you ask people, what are they proud of? Ask them, what are you proud of? What are they going to say? At uh, that time when I went on a holiday to Bali and I had four beers and like yeah. on the beach, like there's the tomorrow that's what yeah. people are proud of yeah that time i got so drunk i threw up on myself and passed out under the full moon <laughs> that might be a fun entertaining story but that's not going to be the right. proudest moment you're not right. going to tell your exactly. kids your grandkids kids gather around the fire grandpa's got a tale of the time i drank three exactly. bottles of tequila that's not <laughs> that's not exactly right. it's a doing the hard stuff and it's not about just about sales it's doing any job function also in sales and i think this is uh, the reason I'm bringing it up is because it gets missed in this stereotype that people have of someone wearing a fancy suit and drinking too late with coffees for and... closers. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So that stuff that happens behind the scenes, the the grit, the need to get up every time you get knocked down, and the sense of commitment, the preparation, listening, uh, these are all very valuable traits that people sometimes don't appreciate. Yeah, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. So where do you think things are going? We've had a lot of new technology emerge. Things geopolitically have been very interesting lately. We've had a silent coup on the world's <laughs> nations, which it's now okay to talk about what it wasn't okay to talk about before. Where do you think things are going to be in five, 10 years in, in terms of what trends are you watching and what do you think the listeners maybe need to pay attention to? So I think in the sales world, it's, there's an old adage, like people buy from people that they respect. Mm -hmm. and right. 
that is unlikely to change in the next 10 years, no matter what generative AI does. Sales is an emotional process. And the emphasis is and trust. It's not enough to be the nice guy who gets donuts every time he comes. That won't be enough. That won't suffice. Yeah, how do you also be the guy that solves the problem when there is a problem? The person who knows stuff, the person who appreciates what the client does. It's a combination of the warmth and the strength that matters. And it'll only get strengthened right now because it's not about, it's no longer going to be about how fancy your PowerPoint is. Jenny, I will generate that. The ChatGPT is already doing it. Microsoft has got this uh, Microsoft Copilot program. You can stick in the meeting notes from the previous day's uh, Teams meeting and, and here's your fancy PowerPoint. So it's not about how fancy your, your tools look or how articulate your pitch looks. Yep. It is it so that the key elements of sales that I talked about earlier, if anything, will become even more pronounced, not less pronounced. Because what was our set of that in terms of whether it is a, a slide, fancy slide deck or a good sounding pitch is going to become more commonplace mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because of Gen AI and and it will come back to the basic people skills. Do I trust this person? Will this mm-hmm. person be around if I have a problem? Mm-hmm. Does, does he know what does he know what my, what I need and what I want? Can he appreciate my unarticulated needs? So these things will in, in fact become amplified and it's going to be very hard for Gen AI to do any of that. Yeah. Anytime soon, who knows what the future holds, but I think given the state of Gen AI, it is not in a state where it can read emotions too well. It's not a state where it can ask intelligent questions to tap unarticulated needs mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at least not in a position not in a situation where a humanoid or a software program can do it and right. because people and, and and secondly people's buying is a process like any b2b large sales is you're talking months sometimes years of sales cycle so that's not going to be automated the number of people that have to be involved number of different people who's buying is required. So if you're in sales and if you're in sales management or individual sales, you're safe, your job is highly unlikely that Gen AI can do anything that you do anytime soon. Mm. It can perhaps make the job of creating proposals easy. It can perhaps make your PowerPoint creations easy. Instead of spending three days, you'll probably spend an hour or even less. So that part of the job will become easier and less uh, mundane and, and the human effort-centric aspects of creating the artifacts will get reduced. Great insights. Then I've got a couple of pages of notes here. This has been a great call. People may want to listen to this more than once to make sure they get all the goods out of it. I also want to be respectful of your time. Is there anything we haven't talked about that we should have talked about or anything I sh- didn't ask you that I should have asked you? No, I think we have touched upon a lot of points. And you did a great job, Daryl, of eliciting all, all the insightful aspects. Uh, I think the only thing I'll add is but sales management is uh, also a discipline in itself. Right. As an individual contributor, you, as you take on more responsibilities and you become a manager of people, manager of managers, and as you get further and further removed, you will have to acquire a, a different perspective, uh, a different, and be mindful of the journey, right? It's a classical trap. A lot of times we pick the best individual contributor and make him or her the manager. The P, they call that the Peter principle. Wow, you're great at sales. Let's make you the sales trainer. Wow, you did a great job as a Correct. sales trainer. Let's make you sales manager. Wow, you did a great job as sales manager. Let's make you VP of sales. Wow, you suck at this. So we'll just leave you there because <laughs> we can't demote you. And yeah, it's called the Peter principle. You get promoted yeah, to the highest level, level of incompetency. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's something that uh, people have to be mindful. Uh, it's, it's a great career track. 
Uh, it's something very satisfying, keeps you very close to the customer, helps you use different aspects of your competency, intellectual, emotional, and social. All of them can be deployed. And there are not many careers that help you use this broad spectrum of competencies. Mm. Um, a lot of professions tend to focus on one or two aspects of your competencies. Mm. But sales is the area where you can really use the, the, the broad spectrum of what you bring to the table. Yeah. And I will definitely encourage people to consider it. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Vin, this has been such a good call. Where should people reach out if they want to continue the conversation and if they want to hear and learn more? They can reach out to my on LinkedIn or they can write to me directly, winbut11 at gmail.com, winbut11 at gmail.com. I'd be happy to get emails from people or reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on the social media, on LinkedIn in specific. So I would be happy to chat offline. So, so that's so once again, you can find him on LinkedIn. It's V I N A Y A K bot B H A T C F A on LinkedIn. Or he said he can email him at Vin bot V I N B H A T one one at gmail.com. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. You got it. Vin, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Very insightful. And I know you've got your own direct reports, your own customers, your own teams, your own people to take care of. So, thank you for coming to share with me and mine so we can all do a little bit better. Thank you, Daryl. I really enjoyed the chat with you. I hope that listens to you as well.